SABS test the test number 23. Vacuum cleaners. Okay, so I'm going to vacuum something up and you tell me what it is. Got it. Chips, salt and vinegar, three days old. Right. Apple juice, 60% concentration. Yeah, well done. Smarties, three blues, one green and four yellows. Mm, it's uh, three yellows. Very good. At SABS, we pride ourselves on our rigorous testing, even when testing our testers. SABS, your trusted mark of approval. More music, more inspiration. Vuga Online. Go local. Go global. Discovery Bank brings you Vitality Travel, the world's first shared value travel booking platform. With the widest range of travel partners than ever before, your healthy behaviors get you those bigger discounts. Up to 75% off local and international flights, discounts on accommodation, car hire, and amazing travel packages. Join Discovery Bank today and go everywhere with Vitality Travel. Discovery Bank, the future of banking, now. You're listening to Vuga Online. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. I'm sure by now that you know that Healthcare Hour is all about healthcare professionals. It's us understanding that healthcare professionals are people. And yes, they are hugely experts in what they do, but they're first and foremost people. We're also here to make sure that we understand as patients that we have autonomy, that we can make decisions about our health. And we aren't just like blindly being told what to do. We also need to take responsibility for our healthcare choices, for our life, how we choose to live, and the subsequent issues that come from our choices. And then, of course, it's to improve the relationships between healthcare professionals, patients, families, all of us, because at some point, we're either on one side or we're on the other. Today's show is very interesting. It's all about HIV, and I have an amazing guest to introduce you to. And we're going to have a big, deep dive into HIV, into AIDS. Where are we now? What's happened since COVID? But we're going to hear all about that from our guest after the break. SABS test the test number 23, vacuum cleaners. Okay, so I'm going to vacuum something up, and you tell me what it is. Got it. Chips, salt and vinegar, three days old. Right. Apple juice, 60% concentration. Yeah, well done. Smarties, three blues, one green and four yellows. Mm, it's uh, three yellows. Very good. At SABS, we pride ourselves on our rigorous testing, even when testing our testers. SABS, your trusted mark of approval. More music, more inspiration with Vuga Online. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. As you know, I'm a coach and a mentor. I work specifically with professionals on the other side of their titles, and I work lots in healthcare. Today's guest is Professor Francois Fenter, and he's going to be speaking to us all about HIV. So, Francois, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How's it, everyone? Okay, so let's tell all of you more about Professor Francois Fenter. He is has a doctor of medicine. He is a fellow of the College of Physicians, and he, he also has a PhD. So he's academic and medical, both sides. He's head of Azinsha at the University of the Witwatersrand, and he's also there as Prof. Department of Internal Medicine, Faculty of Health Sciences. He did most of his training at WITS. His work involves health systems research that directly translates into national programs, 
most recently involving a whole bunch of antiretrovirals, which I'm sure he's going to tell us about. He leads multiple antiretroviral treatment optimization studies and is currently working on new access programs through private pharmacies within South Africa, as well as he's working on patient linkage to care interventions and self-testing projects. He has led large PEPFAR-funded HIV programs in South Africa, focusing on men, women, children, young people, truckers, sex workers, and LGBTI communities. For over 20 years, he's been an advisor to bodies such as the South African government, UNAIDS, and the World Health Organization. And he's contributed to international, regional, and national HIV guidelines. So you can see he's the perfect person to tell us the truth. He has recently served as a member of the Ministerial Advisory Committee for COVID, the Department of Science and Technology Research and Innovation Committee. He advised on COVID-19 research, and he has an active interest in medical ethics. He's been involved in several HIV-related human rights cases within the Southern African region, and he supervises a large number of master's and PhD projects. So he's the prof for lots of students who are very stressed. And his recent work has included publications in Lance and HIV, New England Journal of Medicine, Nature, AIDS, and PLOS Medicine, which is the Public Library of Science. So, Professor Fenter, welcome. Thanks so much. <laughs> Let's hear, first of all, from you as to how did you get into medicine? <laughs> I was a did you fall into it? <laughs> I was a plus YRP, like grew up in a tiny little town and knew next to nothing about medicine. So it was just kind of the thing we did in the in the eighties, you know, when I was at high school, was you kind of became an engineer and a, or a doctor or any of those like labels. You kind of went to medical school or you went to engineering school or you went became a chartered accountant or something. Your parents kind of bundled you off to to high school with a bursary. Uh, sorry, to university. And that's kind of where I went. And I went to one of these aptitude training things at WITS at the time as I, as a, in Standard 9, and they sort of said you should be an engineer or a doctor, and that's how. So it was not very, uh, I wouldn't say it was very scientific. There were no doctors in the family or anyone that I kind of followed. Um, my brother's a GP, actually, so uh, we're slowly changing that. But no, there was nothing like very focused or because I loved patients or anything. I think the... Um, a change. The interesting thing is, while I was training as a medical student, I changed my mind about 17 times. I wanted to be a psychiatrist, and I wanted to be a cardiologist, and I wanted to be an ICU doctor, and then I fell into HIV by almost by mistake. Um, I trained as a specialist and came into during that time came into to touch with um, with the HIV community and the activist community, and took a job almost by mistake in HIV, and that kind of changed my life and. Um, that was actually the time at medical school at Fitz that um, I kind of got introduced to, you know, to the topic and and you know, kind of changed and transformed me into this the person that I am now. Yes, it's interesting how the universe ensures that our purpose and calling finds us. <laughs> yeah, I, I think mine was a lot more chaotic. I hated when medical students come and say, you know, "Be my mentor and tell me what you know." Like Finding people <laughs> with these. 40-year plans. I'm like, I don't have a 40-day plan, let alone a 40-year plan. And uh, yes. not sure 
any I you know five year increments when I look back and I had no idea where I was going to end up. I think um I'm not sure there was a universe plan, but I was very lucky to with some of the things I had going for me. So I you know, I had a bursary, I had a very very good, strong university and you know, the, the people I who mentored me were very strong. So I was yeah, I, I had a lot going for me. Okay. All right. So Tell us more about HIV. Where are we? What I was sharing with you before we started our interview is is that it's almost like, you know, in those 80s days, we heard about HIV in every sentence. And since COVID, it's almost like it's off the table now. So I think for your listeners, the kind of headline news, um, you know, in 2023, HIV is a virus that you know, is largely contracted sexually. You can get other ways. You can get sharing dirty needles and through breastfeeding and a whole range of other ways as well. But it's still, certainly in South Africa, the vast majority of ways you catch it is sexually. Um, if you leave it alone and you don't diagnose it, it can cause a lot of damage, diagnose it early and can wreck your immune system. But the drugs are unbelievably effective, particularly if you start them while you're still healthy and while your immune system's intact. In fact, they're so effective that they they pretty much get rid of the virus within your um, within your bloodstream, within your body, you know, in the deep dark sites where the virus hides out. It doesn't cure you. The virus is exceedingly good at integrating itself into your genetic material. It actually becomes almost part of you. And the minute you stop the drugs, it comes back again. So you know, what we've been tussling with over the last 20 years um, is to try and make the drugs safer and safer and safer. Um, and having a parallel research community, which is looking at trying to cure people. So where we are in 2023 is very safe drugs, which is a tablet today in South Africa. And the drugs we have available in South Africa, in both the private and the public sector, are the same, pretty much the same drugs you would get in Adelaide, you get in London, you would get in New York, but at a fraction of the cost. So... In the state sector, we pay probably in the realm of about, I'm trying to work out the, the exchange rate at the moment, but probably in the realm of about, um, probably about a thousand rand um, a, um, a year. It's obviously significantly more expensive in the private sector, but not a lot. Um, but they're amazing with minimal side effects, a little bit of monitoring, probably get a blood test a year once you're established on therapy. And most people, would be treated with, as I said, very, very few side effects. Most of them in the first few weeks and people get over them. They're more a nuisance than anything else. A little bit of, you know, might feel a little bit bloated, tiny bit nauseous. You might have some strange dreams, a little bit of insomnia in the first week or two. And as I said, most people get over that. And the people who don't, you know, it might take a month or two in more severe cases. And in the very occasional people who don't get over it, we've got alternatives that we can, we can offer to people. So it's, you know, you don't need to suffer in silence. If you go back to your doctor or nurse, you say, listen, I'm really not enjoying this. Um, yeah, we can, we've got 17 different options in the background. So it really is different in 2023. Um, when you compare it to a disease like hypertension or diabetes, you know, it, I, I joke to people, I say it's almost an embarrassment of riches in the HIV field. We've nailed the therapeutics. The challenge we have is to get people tested in time and then to get them to swallow their tablets every day. And I take tablets every day for cholesterol. I know it's a battle. You know, it's a pain in the neck. I have to put them next to my toothbrush. You know, I have to remember to collect my prescription every day, every month. And it's that's 
the irritation value, you know, and I think that's where the battle comes in is now to try and get people to swallow them every day is to get the diagnosis and then move them into, into a different place in their heads, which is make it a habit. And that it's a good place to be from 20 years ago where everybody died, you know, um, and, or they would, if they were lucky enough to afford the therapies they came with really terrible side effects. Yeah, so it's interesting in how far we've come, as you said, from the death sentence where that's it, HIV became AIDS and there was no hope, compared to now a whole host of antiretrovirals being available. So why are there so many different antiretrovirals? Is it like tomato sauce in different brands? Yeah, it's even nicer than that. You know, it's um, the, I mean, I suppose I'm trying to think of an analogy around tomato sauce, but it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, you know, we've got about almost 40 odd drugs available. In fact, we're so lucky in the HIV field, we've been able to retire about half of our antiretrovirals because they're just toxic or don't add anything to what we've got at the moment. You know, there's some drugs which have got very few side effects, but they're expensive and they don't really add anything. So they've quietly just disappeared off the scene. Some drugs are just so toxic, we just don't need them anymore. The current crop that we've got are just so good. You know, they're almost impossible to break as well, you know, from a resistance perspective. It's more of the battle is just remembering to swallow them every day. The new generation of drugs we're testing at the moment, and we're busy testing them here in central Johannesburg, in Cape Town, in, in Durban, are the injectable drugs. And that, I think, is where we're going to go to next. Is You know, it's a pain in the neck swallowing drugs every day. The, the stuff we're looking at the moment are where you'll have an injection every two to three months. So it's more like contraception in some ways, you know, is instead of having to swallow a tablet every day, you'll just pop into your local pharmacy or GP or clinic and they'll jab you. The first price is, um, that's probably probably five, 10 years away, is an implant, which is, you know, you'll have a, again, it's like some of the contraceptive choices we have. Um, a small little thing that'll go just under your armpits, we'll implant it maybe once every year or two and you will completely forget you've even got it so this is where we're going with all these new drugs we're even looking at things like you know like the nicorette patches we have in smoking we might even have that available in the future a little small patch on the on your back which you'll you'll put there and you won't even know so there's really nifty stuff that's coming forward so at, you know we've got several drugs available lots and lots and lots of them the ones available in south africa you know, there's so little to choose between them. You know, it's like choosing between blue Smarties and red Smarties, I must say. You know, it looks different, but honestly, once you swallowed them, once they're in your mouth, you wouldn't even notice the difference. Okay, so interesting and, and interesting to hear new things that are coming. But let's go for our break, and then we're going to look at more about, yeah, where where we are. But let's go for our break. Perhaps it's because we're a family, or that we've been making whiskey together for over five generations. That at Grants, we believe friends aren't the people you do things with, they're the people you share things with. Discover a different angle. Grants Whiskey. You're listening to Fuga Online Radio. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. My guest today is Professor Francois Fenter, and he is an expert on HIV, especially from an antiretroviral point of view, certainly from a research side. And he's been sharing with us just 
the changes and the differences we've seen from when first HIV was discovered, it became known, and it was a death sentence, to now saying that our old drugs that we have, our antiretrovirals have now even been shelved, our new ones are cost-effective, they work really well, and they have minimal side effects. But the problem is, is trying to get people to swallow them every day, because as soon as you stop taking your antiretrovirals, your your the disease almost makes itself known again, whereas before it's always there, but just controlled. So yeah. what work are we doing to make sure, you know, when we look at lifestyle, so as you said right in the beginning, HIV is is mainly spread or moved from one person to the other via sexual contact. Right. So are we doing the ABC, you know, in terms of the abstaining, the condomizing, the story, or are we just saying live whatever life you like and just have catch whatever you like and have antiretrovirals? So it's quite a complicated answer, which is not what public health people are comfortable with. And um, is once you are on antiretrovirals and once there's no virus in your bloodstream, you know, we have everyone knows about their viral loads and every person with yeah. HIV you know, knows about their viral load and can recite it back. In fact, that's the blood test we most worry about. In the old days, we'd all be worried about a CD4 count, which is, you know, a measure of your immune status and how strong your immune system is. And we're kind of less interested in that now once you're on the established antiretrovirals. We worry about the CD4 count at the start of therapy because that tells you how vulnerable you are to all the hohos in your environment that are trying to take you out. But once you're on your ARVs, your CD4 count starts going up and you tend to get better quite quickly. Um, but what the viral load is like, how good are the drugs doing at getting control of your virus? And that's very important. The interesting thing is once the viral load goes down your bloodstream, you sexually don't transmit the virus. You know, once it's what we call undetectable. And I think, again, everybody um, who's listening, who's HIV positive will know exactly what I mean, is you just don't transmit. Now, you don't transmit you know, sexually, but you also don't transmit via your breast milk. You don't transmit to your unborn baby. It's quite incredible. It's not often in medicine we can make categoric statements, but we know um, that people just don't transmit. So we are in a position to say to people, say, for instance, you're in a, what we call a discordant couple or um, the, the other terms, more politically correct terms um, that we're using at the moment, but where one person's positive and one person's negative and say they're married. And they want to say, can I throw away the condoms? We can actually tell them to throw away the condoms and say, listen, you know, um, do you do you think it's safe? And in fact, we know now it is safe as long as your viral load is undetectable. And increasingly, we're getting confident to be able to dish out that advice. We also have medicines which we can give to people who are negative. The same drugs, actually, that we use in for people who are positive what we call pre-exposure prophylaxis. Think about it like, you know, when you go into a malaria area, you take prophylaxis, you take, you know, um, drugs like, um, you know, that that would stop you getting malaria. You would obviously stop yourself um, getting bitten. You'd stop, you know, you'd take bed nets and things like that. In the same way, we would use condoms, but you would also take these drugs if you go into, into a high-risk situation. Um, you would, the person who's positive, just simply being on drugs is actually enough. It's, these drugs are so, so powerful in HIV. So it's quite a difficult situation to be. We do know that condoms work very, very well in terms of stopping transmission as well as getting HIV. <clears throat> and certainly South Africa has been very successful. It's got 
<coughs> excuse me, one of the most successful condom programs in the world. So we don't want to underestimate that. <coughs> Sorry, pardon me. As he um, coughs, looks for um, his water. Yeah, uh, talking too much. <laughs> um, but you know, so when we're counseling couples, for instance, or somebody who's HIV positive going into the dating pool, or somebody who's negative going into the dating pool who's just worried, you have to be quite nuanced in terms of saying that. Or somebody who's dating somebody who's HIV positive. Um, you know, who wants to ask about the risk. These are the sort of questions you need to ask is, what is that person's viral load? Because <clears throat> if it is truly undetectable, they're not going to pass it on. So then it's an interesting thing conceptually because then it becomes like hypertension and diabetes. If you just swallow your tablets, you're going to, you, you know, we, we've got quite good data now to suggest that that person's lifespan is probably going to start approaching normal. So one of the things HIV my field is now grappling with, you know, is how do you look after people getting old with HIV? And in fact, our biggest challenge at the moment, which is going to maybe blow a lot of, I don't want to scare people with HIV, um, and I don't want to scare your listening public, but one of the biggest problems we're grappling with is people gaining weight and coming in with hypertension and diabetes and all the chronic diseases that hit all the HIV negative people in South Africa. Um, Weight gain is actually one of our biggest challenges. And there's some data to suggest that, you know, HIV is an inflammatory disease. With all inflammatory diseases, when you shut it down, people start gaining weight. So we're really battling at the moment with, certainly in my clinic, with weight gain. Um, patients are doing brilliantly. They're not getting TB. They're back. They're running the Comrades Marathon. They're going back to work. They're living to be 70. You know, they're getting their retirement annuities going. But they're gaining weight hand over fist. And trying to stop that is... You know, I keep saying they're turning back into South Africans because lots of South Africans have weight problems. Mm. Um, is actually a real challenge, and trying to work with the Department of Health and with patients themselves to try and slow down that weight progression is is a real challenge. Yes, and is this weight challenge then coming from the fact that HIV positive people are living long enough to have lifestyle issues, or is it coming as a side effect of the antiretrovirals? So we initially thought it was a side effect of the antiretrovirals. There's a whole lot of really smart people at UCT that actually did groundbreaking um, global research that showed it wasn't actually the antiretrovirals. And people are welcome to Google the UCT people. It's Pumla Sigabi's group who did it. Uh, really, we should be incredibly proud of them because they've changed the whole global view of these drugs. Um, and it's a very complex story. In fact, Pumla and her, um, um, one of the professors at, um, uh, so Pumla and Gary Martins in Cape Town, you just Google their names and you'll get the paper will come up. Did a review just a few months ago with me. Um, so if you put our three names in, you'll the paper will come up where we've reviewed um, the paper in the South African um, Journal of HIV Medicine. What the um, very complex interplay of the drugs were, but we're fairly certain now that particularly people with very advanced HIV had quite high levels of inflammation. And when you shut down that inflammation, your body's almost like, oh my God, I was starving. Now I need to put on calories. And yes. the body has problem with, you know, we have almost programmed for starvation and we're not programmed for having, you know, chicken licking on the corner and, yes. you know, ex endless buffets um, and delicious food all the time so we can't we can program down but we can't program up 
we can only program up. And so that kind of thermostat of weight tends to be going, going up, and particularly when you've had inflammation. So we do worry that people with particularly advanced HIV, when they start their ARVs, um, are, are almost primed to gain weight. So we're putting a lot more effort into trying to do things like diet counseling and exercise counseling. Once weight's on, it's on. I think we all know that. I think anybody who's ever been on a diet knows that you know, you're not going to lose weight. You should exercise because it's good for you, and you should eat properly because it's good for you, but it's not going to help you lose weight. Um, it can help you not gain weight further. But for losing weight, you're going to need these new drugs everyone's heard about, and you, or you're going to need surgery, which no one has access to. Um, so there's a lot of work in terms of us trying to think about that. But we don't, we're pretty certain, thanks to the UCT crowd, that's not the drugs that are making you gain weight. Um, it's probably more got to do with the inflammation associated with HIV and then just the South African environment. The fact that, you know, we we live in an environment where our food supply has... We like our, we like our food, we like our alcohol, and we manage our stress um, through our humor and perfectly. our food. Perfectly put. And we don't sleep properly and we spend too much time on our screens and we're also we're like the rest of the world that way. So yes. and I'm no better than the rest of you. <laughs> yeah, and um, we've had uh, quite a few shows on obesity with um Dr. Sundip Bana Bana yeah. and also he was in my Prof. class. Shinda. And um, they like, very much about, you know, we we've been coded to not have a Willies on the corner. We coded Absolutely. to be starved. And now we have a willies on the corner and we're seeing the results of it. The whole of medicine is this coding of, um, you know, we coded for starvation and now we're in a completely different zone. So when we blame people for being overweight, it's completely cruel. You yeah. know, and yeah. we have to find a different way to, to approach this. So, you know, individual blaming is not the way to go. We yes. just have to find a way to change things. I'm a big fan of these new therapeutics. It's just they're so expensive and we, uh, in fact, this morning I was working on a protocol for people with HIV who've gained weight um, to the point where they're uncomfortable and they want to lose it to try and find therapeutics, not antiretrovirals. We're looking at things which are just going to help them lose weight um, that's, that's affordable and available. You know, yeah. So yeah. These, these drugs are there. We just need to make sure that they're safe and that they, they can be accessed in an affordable way. Yes. So before we go for our next break, I know that you have compared HIV and, and obesity as similar epidemics. And is that because the one is leading into the other or why are you comparing them? So the first is stigma. Um, there are a lot of people, when I first came to HIV, which was probably 30 years ago and really got stuck in 25, 20 years ago, there's a lot of stigma. People blame people for being HIV. You know, you're promiscuous, you sleep around, blah, 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 blah. And when you look at the data around Southern Africa and who gets HIV and who doesn't and stuff, it was very much like, you know, too many sex partners, sleeps around. And when you looked at the people who were getting HIV, they actually had less sex partners. In fact, were more likely to use condoms, had less sex actually than people in New York or London or Adelaide. And it was just bizarre there. You know, so this kind of shaming thing and stigma just didn't make sense to me. And we still haven't completely solved the quandary around that, but it's like the, this kind of, it's got to do with your sexual behavior and you must individually um, take responsibility for it. And therefore there's a lot of blame. It's like, you know, you come to me at the age of 19 and you've got HIV, it must be your fault. Now, it's not to say that it's not sexually acquired. It's just the fact that 
laying it at the feet of a specific sexual. So everyone's got a theory. It's all sugar daddies, and it's like, you know, it's you yeah. paying for your cell phone, blah blah blah. In fact, there's so much data to 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 like rattle those like those theories that it's actually almost you don't have hours in the day for me to go through all of that. But to say that, then you go to to obesity, and it's all like you can't keep your mouth closed. You know, it's like a very similar discourse around obesity. Yeah. And you now sit, we know you sit on the couch, you lazy, absolutely. you eat too much, you whatever. And, and, and it's, when you talk, yeah. yeah, exactly. And when you talk to people with overweight or obesity, like they know exactly what they're putting in their mouth. There is such a loss of control. And when you look at the food supply and how it's been changed and the advertising industry and the fact that there is a Woolies on every street corner and the chicken. Yeah, and Woolies is like, going to be seeing us for all of this, Francois. <laughs> no, I, I just as, as somebody who loves the Woolies products, I can just say that that's... <laughs> You're uh, a fan. Powerful. But I think that it's important is that the same stigma. The other thing we're seeing with obesity, with, with HIV, is we saw these new drugs coming in 20 years ago and people like me and had to use these drugs and they had side effects and we had... You know, in 2001, we were using handfuls of tablets in the morning, handfuls of tablets at night. We used them at different CD4 counts. We gave women different tablets to men. We gave them at different CD4 counts. We're seeing this with obesity. We've suddenly got all these new drugs. We don't know whether we can use surgery. We don't know we can put balloons in your stomach. We use this tablet combined with this tablet. The tablets, we play with the doses. You know, we don't know whether we can use them in pregnancy safely. It's exactly the same stuff we were doing 20 years ago. So I feel like mm. obesity medicine is back where we were with HIV 20 years ago. We're stumbling around, but it's exciting because for the first time, we've got these medications and these approaches which are starting to solve the problem. We're still early days, but it's coming. The drugs are way too expensive, which is the same with HIV in 2001, where we were, you know, no one could afford the drugs, except if you were a really rich person living in New York. Now we're starting to fight with the drug companies. We're starting to talk about how can we get lots of people into treatment? What are the blood tests that we need to do? What definitions do we need to do? How do we tackle the stigma and the shame? How do we get primary healthcare nurses to provide the therapeutics? You know, what do we need to do? And that's really exciting to me. And those are the sort of things we need to talk about is, you know, how do we call out people mocking people for having overweight? How do we deal with that? It's not okay to make fun of somebody being HIV positive in this day and age. Like in the same way, it seems to me like it's the last stigma that people think it's okay to mock people for being overweight when they're, you know, like they often have very little control over the circumstances that put them there. Yeah. Okay, so let's go for our break. But I think it's very exciting in that we're learning from each other as a multidisciplinary approach. And so instead of having to recreate the wheel here, let's learn from our colleagues, hey, what worked for you? Because it's the same kind of progression of disease with the same kind of stigma. Yes. But let's go for a break. And then when we come back, we're going to look at access and what, you know, access to antiretrovirals and also what else do we need to know. But let's go for that break. Build generational wealth and save when you combine life and funeral cover. Take one dealer here. For just 347 rand per month, he gets 1.5 million rand life cover plus 15,000 rand funeral cover for his wife. Or Prisha, who gets 1 million rand life cover plus 15,000 rand funeral cover for her grandmother for just 297 rand per month. Build your generational wealth plan today with One Life. Go to onelife.co.za today. One Life. Changing lives. Simply the best. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. 
My guest today is Professor Francois Fenter. He is the prof in the Department of Internal Medicine and Faculty of Health Sciences at University of Advertisrand. And he's also the head of Azincha. And Azincha means creation of something new. Yes. Yeah, my staff um, chose the name, just like the logo and everything else. They, uh, they're real go-getters. Ah, go-getters, starting something new, creation of something new, taking ideas and jim, off we go with these forward ideas. No, so let's wonderful. hear more about, you know, we talk often about, yay, there's these whole ARVs, look at them, they're amazing. But does everyone have access? You know, in South Africa, we always have an issue with access. The right to, but not equal, equal equality and access. So, so there's this, almost everybody does. And in the state sector, certainly the, almost every clinic does. And that's thanks to a lot of activism, a lot of fighting and over the last 20 years, but it's very rare that you would walk into a clinic. There's some treatment action campaigns, all of wings that like patrol the country. They do absolutely amazing work calling out when there are drug stockouts and things. So that actually happens relatively rarely. It still happens. And patients will walk in and only walk out with a month supply when they should be getting three months supply. But it actually is relatively unusual. And people scream blue murder when it does happen. Um, the problem is trying to make sure that that doesn't happen in hypertension and diabetes and mm. asthma and everything else. So, you know, there's continual activism around that in the state sector. In the public, in the private sector, it's a bit more the Wild West. Unfortunately, weirdly enough, patients in the private sector often get a raw deal because, um, you know, I, often doctors aren't as up to date or don't get compelled to move them to the newer regimens as quickly. So we currently having a hard time moving the patients across to these new classes of drugs and about half the patients still on the old drugs that they should have switched across from four or five years ago. Um, we're slowly moving across, but it's really been frustrating um, to, to, to move them across and the outcomes are just not as good on the old class of drugs. Um, but by and large, patients should be getting the best in class that they, that they get. So South Africa actually does not have an HIV access problem. The problem more is to the other, like I said, you know, suddenly we've got this weight gain problem and patients sort of get a kiss on both cheeks and told to go and exercise and, you know, eat more woolies. And that's not affordable for the vast majority of us and no. is actually doesn't make you lose weight, as I said. So we've got to start imagining how we're going to provide the other care so everyone can live to be 80, you know, and live a happy life. You know, swallowing the tablet for the ARV is actually the easiest thing of all. And certainly my clinic, those are the new challenges is actually once you've started the tablet and three months later, everyone's happy and their skin's cleared up and they're full of energy and they've, you know, and their immune system's back on their track and everything's fine. Living their life is actually the hard stuff is looking after all the other stuff is much more challenging. And in fact, being a general doctor and a general nurse is the challenging stuff is how do you plan your children? How do you plan for your retirement annuities? How do you go to university? How do you, you know, go back to your career? Um, and how do you make the clinic friendly is actually far more challenging. And I think that's the new realm of HIV. I've, we had our big um, local HIV conference last week, and it was interesting watching the change from our first conference, maybe 12, 15 years ago, which was all about treating people in the hospital who were trying to die. This, we had sections on how do you 
give integrated care? How do you screen your, their blood pressure? How do you look for mental health issues and stuff? And there was the room was packed with nurses and doctors and pharmacists for those sessions, you know, because that's the stuff we're seeing every day. You know, we're not seeing so often people walking through. The, we still do see lots of people coming in very, very sick, but not in the numbers that we were seeing 15 years ago. Now people coming in with depression, you know, they're they're dealing with the alcohol issues, the trauma of losing their grandmother and not being able to deal with it. They've lost their job. You know, that stuff is the everyday stuff that we're seeing that we need to understand what to do with as doctors and nurses and pharmacists and goodness knows who else. Um, and that is hard stuff, you know, yeah. like as a clinician, when you don't have the resources of a rich country. Now, it's quite fascinating how, how you've transitioned where patients didn't live. So, you know, like within a short time, they were gone. And now it's almost like, you know, the depression, the socioeconomic status in the in the country, how they're coping with load shedding. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think that all these challenges, like not things we would have anticipated. So everyone's getting the tablet a day, you know, and should be getting, or if they're not, the reasons are systemic rather yeah. than, financial or because the drugs aren't there so that stuff should have should be swept away you know it's just, as i said yeah. it's actually systemic incompetence rather than the patient's fault but this other stuff is coming from the left field is we're gonna have to solve that stuff we probably have to solve it for everyone for diabetics hypertensives and everything yes. else you know just get better at that stuff yeah Okay, and as you say, you know, we're looking at how to do the daily sort of pop your pull daily, looking at injectables, looking at patches, looking at all different and even, um, you know, implantables of saying it's there. You don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, the, the interesting stuff about that, at FITS certainly we've got these amazing people in the pharmacology department doing this who work on these implantables and patches. They also look at things where they coat the tablets, for instance, um, with with certain buffers and things, which just mean they, they get absorbed much more slowly. So you can take a tablet once a week, for instance, rather than once a day. They look at playing with the injections so that the injections float around your bloodstream. You know, the, the drug floats around your bloodstream and dissolves much more slowly. So you might get away with taking the injection once every six months rather than every three months. Yeah. So, you know, you, South Africa's got talent. You know, it's really amazing when you watch the scientists and the people around yes. us and they, they just need to get stuck in and given permission to get stuck in. And I'm amazed that the people just Fitz has, but watching UCT and KZN and some of the like yeah. Victoria and out you know in Northwest and like every now and again somebody puts their head up and you think, Oh my goodness, there's big brains in this you know yeah. down south. But it's also that big brains are learning how to work with each other. Yeah. And all come into the same room and like the ego is, is starting. Well, I wouldn't say it's gone, but oh, it's no. starting <laughs> to like, no. Okay. But it's, it's almost saying, Hey guys, what can we do together? So we're learning to collaborate as opposed to compete. Look, I think they're always going to be the egos and academics and yeah. doctors and the medical professions full of yeah, academic plus medical. Talk. You've got egos. Oh God. And I'm sure you'll, poor patients have had to deal with this left right and center but the yeah but the, the, the uh, one thing i have learned is that when you can carve out people and get away from that stuff people do work very well together and they, they, exactly. when they start sharing yes. ideas and just being an exciting group you can have so much fun you can move stuff forward with the alv field i think for instance 
one thing South Africa has done pretty well is we've got away from the inter-university fighting. You know, like, you know, you look at some of the tiffs between universities, um, but in, so I won't name names, but in certain disease fields, but like in HIV, like the KZN, UCT, and VITS people just work happily together yeah. on these things. Happily and, together. You know, it's like, oh, you know, we have to, one university has to be better than the other, and we couldn't give two hoots, you know, we just wanted to fix HIV. Yes. Um, and that really was fun. We just like, whoever was working well with each other and liked each other, just go on with it. And, and the other thing I think that was useful is that HIV was really led by the activists. You know, the researchers and stuff got stuck in, but the activists really got stuck into the systems work. They were the ones screaming blue murder. Why didn't we have access to care? And what I'm seeing rising up at the moment in the diabetes world is people patients standing up and saying why the hell do i not have the best care for diabetes and people yeah. increasing cystic fibrosis world standing up and saying my kid has cystic fibrosis why do they have to pay a fortune for drugs why are they dying for want of drugs and i think there's a real lesson for the patient communities is to start following the hiv positive people and their families and starting to scream blue murder about not having access to the best care there's no reason why these drugs are so expensive you know other than mm -hmm. they are very greedy people making obscene profits no one's disputing that people need to make a reasonable amount of profit to maintain the sustainability of these things. But honestly, like sometimes I look at at the level of the profit for some of these drugs, like the cystic fibrosis drugs and these obesity drugs, I just think you can't defend that. It's nonsense. Mm. You didn't have to do it with HIV. You don't have to do it for other disease states. Yeah. But there, okay, so your message then to patients is to not just sit quietly on the sideline and be dictated to they need to take control of their own health journeys. Absolutely. And I think that also, you know, make a fuss. Like, I think I got yelled at for using all sorts of un-PC and hurtful language, like, you know, when I moved across into HIV. And then when I had to start working in the sort of obesity, overweight world, I had to go through the same thing. I got, had to be taught about, like, hey, dude, like, you're the doctor looking after me. The stuff you're saying is hurtful. You know, like, yeah. like it didn't take much for me to relearn just some of my language, you know, and there's nothing wrong with having to like just change some of your views and things. And I realized like a lot of the stuff I'd been saying firstly was hurtful, but secondly, it was actually quite unscientific and stupid. So but it, it, comes, it, it comes from a position of not knowing. And when we don't yeah. know, we can't. So once we know differently, we can do differently. But yeah. it's making sure that we know differently. And then we also lovingly and, call each yeah. other out of saying, okay, yeah. let's learn a new way. Absolutely. I had to learn in HIV when you know, I went into that 25 years ago and I'm having to relearn it walking into, you know, into this new field that's overlapping with it. And mm. as I can tell you as a medical professional, I did not get taught this and I don't know if the medical field is being taught. It's the new field. But I also just think that you know, one thing I would say to patients, you're the expert in your disease. I don't, you know, I don't have obesity. I don't have HIV. Like, I do take tablets every day. So I have expertise in taking their tablets every day. So I'm quite happy to call out people when they tell me, who, when somebody doesn't take tablets every day, I know what it's like to take tablets yeah. every day. But I don't know what it's like to have diabetes. So, you know, let a diabetic tell me. You know, yes. like... Okay, so um, Francois, in closing, your message for your fellow medical colleagues. You have to retrain yourself if you're looking after HIV, I think, is you need to be a chronic care doctor. You have to learn about diabetes, hypertension, looking after people with overweight. You're going to have to look. These people, it's a disease of aging. 
and you have to look after people you have to make them age successfully you have to let them have their kids and then start looking after them and make sure that they get to see their retirement annuities that's my general message to them um it's a very exciting time um you know again and stop worrying about the side effects as much and rather look at the people the person in front of you because that's a much more complicated set of problems you know it's, it's the, the drugs are actually really simple we've nailed it um it's a really fun time to be looking after people with hiv but it's a much more it's a very different um set of problems and issues and skills you're going to need going forward to what we were looking at 15 20 years ago Okay, and to all of you out there, if you are using the old family of antiretrovirals, come now, get with the picture, and start using the new ones. Okay. All right, so thank you so much, um, Dr. Francois Fenter. You've been a breath of fresh air, and I think also um, just showing us the hope. But... I think we should also take a moment to actually recognize all those scientists out there, all those people who are working in labs and in all different to move drugs forward, to move our, our state of care. And we have got amazing researchers in South Africa. So let's just recognize you and all of them of saying, yay, well done. We see you. So thank you very much for joining me. Take care, everyone. Yes. Okay, so you have been tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Pust. Remember that you are loved, you matter, and you're not alone. We'll see you all next time. How do you know the life of personal coach you are about to work with is who they say they are? How do you know if they can do the job? At the Africa Board for Coaching, Consulting, and Coaching Psychology, we can tell you. So, before you share your secrets and spend your money, check with us first. Visit www.abccp.com or call us on 012-751-7608. The ABCCP, the professional body for coaches. Your Inspirational Radio, Vula Online.